This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with S. James Gates, Jr. He's the Toll Professor of Physics and Director of the Center for String and Particle Theory at the University of Maryland in College Park. I spoke with him on January 25, 2012, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of NPR in Washington, D.C. This interview is included in our show, Uncovering the Codes for Reality. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. Well, thank you very much, Krista. Yeah. It's very nice to be able to speak with you. Yeah. Um, you sound good to me. I'm looking behind the glass. Chris, do you want us to do some... Let's talk about something mundane before we have a high-level discussion about string theory. <clears throat> okay, um, well. Tell me, what did you have for lunch? Oh, I'm actually on a diet, so I didn't have lunch. Is that going all right for you? Actually, yeah, I've lost about uh, 14 or 15 pounds so far. Mm -hmm. I've got another 14 or 15 to go before I'm going to stop. Mm -hmm. Well, congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I learned a couple of years ago that I can actually diet. I, before, a few years ago, I never had to diet, but, uh, you know, I'm, I just passed my 61st birthday, and I found, hmm, well, this is probably something I want to learn to do. So I've been learning. <laughs> That's good. Um, Chris, how are we doing? I hear a little bit of an echo, although I'm not Yeah, I do. I hear a little bit of an echo. Do you Okay. Um, the engineer might be able to do that, but yeah, he's pointing his finger and he certainly turned the volume down here. I don't know what it sounds like there. Um, okay. Let me, I'm think I'm, I think it's gone now. Okay. That's good. Um, so, you know, we get to have a real wide ranging conversation. Yeah, the, I don't know if you got any of those uh, links I sent. I got all. I got them. I've looked at all of them, and uh, I'm very excited. And I, <laughs> I really am. And I, um, you know, I, I think we have to. I, I wanted. To, I want to be as uh, to understand as much as what we're talking about. And on the other hand, I'm, I'm, I'm here for my listeners who who won't sure. understand. So we're going to be walking that line. But I think that's a line you walk all the time. Uh, generally, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's uh, I have so many hats these days mm -hmm. that I, I'm, I'm short of heads. Right. <laughs> I did. I did like the uh, the, the the parallel use. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Um, when they told me they were going to do that, I said, "Gee, that's going to be so hokey." But when I saw the final result, I was impressed. It was your super partner, right? Yeah, <laughs> your super that was my super identity. partner, James Ness James. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> okay. Well, let's start. Um, this is just a question I, I ask everybody, and I, I can't remember if I asked you when we spoke years ago. Um, was there a, a religious or spiritual background in your childhood when you were growing up? Well, we were followers of the African-American Episcopal uh, mm -hmm. religion. Uh, um, and all through my childhood—well, I'm sorry, all through my teenage years in Orlando, Florida, I— um, was almost always found on Sunday in Sunday school. Mm -hmm. And during the summers, there was something called Vacation Bible School, and we attended that. 
And they had little contests, and I meant to say denomination as opposed to religion earlier, mm-hmm. but we, we, um, there were little contests, and uh, on one of these contests, I won a Bible for being able to recite the most books in the Bible correctly in order. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, and I sense uh, from all I've read that, that when you were growing up, there would be an understatement to say that, you know, you wouldn't have predicted that you would become a physicist. (laughs) (laughs) Not only is it an understatement, I um, recently was able to track down the very beginning of the process, which had been hidden dimly in my memory uh, for, oh, geez, 55, 56 years. Do you want to hear the story? Yeah, sure. Okay, so in 1953 or 1954, a young African-American mother by the name of Charlie Anglin Gates, took her three children to a movie uh, near St. John's, Newfoundland, off the uh, maritime coast uh, of Canada. Mm. And um, the movie um, starred Howard Duff, and the name of the movie was Spaceways. <laughs> and um, the for years, I could only remember one or two scenes from the movie, and the ending is what was mostly seared into my memory because it, it was the, the protagonist and his uh, enamorata, and they were in spacesuits, but they were in a spaceship, and their helmets were off, and they were hugging each other because they were about to die. And I remembered that. And um, I came home apparently fascinated by the idea of space travel, mm. and I told my father about it. So then, like I said, this is 1954, maybe 53 and he remembered that. And in 1958, when we were then had moved to Fort Bliss, Texas, he bought me some books by an author named Willie Lay. And these books were all about rockets and traveling to space. And by that time, I could read. Mm. And that was literally the birth of the idea in my head that a, I wanted to be an astronaut, which I almost did become. I read that, that you tried out <laughs> for it. You went into astronaut uh, training or you, you auditioned Well, it went to evaluation, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but simultaneous with that, I somehow knew that science was how you got to go to space. So right. the idea of being an astronaut scientist, were both were born simultaneously in my head from reading those books. Isn't it interesting? It's just striking me as I'm listening to you talk. That 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 the words that space is the word uh, we <laughs> used right in the latter half of the twentieth century when it Absolutely. when it became something kind of attainable even in a way that it's that we're differently equipped now but um, it doesn't even begin to convey what you know about <laughs> what we call space now. No, my my understanding of the word space now is so very different from my understanding at age four or my understanding at age eight. I like to tell people that uh, from reading the books by uh, uh, Willie Lay, I had my own personal big bang between my ears mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Uh, around age eight or so, I kind of thought of, you know, I had an idea about how large the universe must be. And it, and it didn't come from any great deep insight. The point was that as an eight-year-old child, I saw these tiny dots of light in the sky, 
And when I realized that they were places, the question was, well, gee, how far could they be if they were that small? Mm -hmm. And so that's why I meant by I, I just had a sense of the enormity of the size of the universe, not by any scientific or mathematical scale, but just sort of in a personal relationship sort of way. Uh, that's when I kind of knew where I was in the universe. It, I, I, you know, it's a very strange thing for an eight-year-old kid to, to, to come upon, but that's what happened to me. And, and you also, I understand, were reading science fiction. Um, I think somewhere you wrote, I, you, had, you had a big fa- science life and a big fantasy life. And in fact, oh. both of those things worked well. With, with going into physics. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the fantasy life, uh, partly, uh, it's, it's funny. Uh, I actually had reading trouble when I was in first and second grade. I, have, mm-hmm. I did not naturally pick up reading, but it was enormously stressful to me. So um, I used to do things like get in the bed at night and pull the covers on, over my head and I'd take a flashlight with me, and I'd start trying to read. And it was after bedtime, so every you know I had to cover up so my parents wouldn't be upset with me. And that drive to learn to read um, actually caused an intersection with another very famous name of, of science fiction, namely Isaac Asimov. Oh, right. right. Isaac Asimov uh, had a, another pseudonym uh, uh, called Paul French, and he wrote a series of children's books of, of adventures on Mars. I didn't know that. Yes, and the character's name was Lucky Star with two R's. <laughs> and in my drive to read, you know, I had this sort of predisposition to think about space and rockets and what have you, and then in this drive to learn to read, it naturally coalesced around Lucky Star and science fiction. So mm-hmm. from like maybe nine or ten uh, maybe even as early as eight, I was reading science fiction. Um, my mother died from cancer uh, in 1963. Right. And uh, one of the ways that I avoided having to deal with that horribly painful situation was to escape into the world of science fiction and fantasy. Hmm. And so that was a very powerful force impelling me uh, to exercise my imagination. I, I could draw fairly well as a child. I, I didn't concentrate on the human form. I concentrated on rockets and ships and airplanes, cars, mechanical things. And I used to, like, try to figure out what had to be inside the skin of the rocket, where you put the fuel pumps and the pump lines right. and the space cabins and all that sort of stuff. And so although I was sort of bound in this world of fantasy, it was kind of a particular kind of fantasy that uh, that I that uh, sustained me in, in, in those uh, desolate times. And then on top of that, I, I um, we have kind of what I call a math bug in our family. My, my grandfather could neither read nor write, but he could do simple arithmetic. Hmm. And my dad never finished high school, but he was clearly interested in mathematics. I remember watching him studying trigonometry and um, even some calculus as he was uh, a soldier, uh, and particularly when he was working with artillery in the U.S. Army. Oh. And so those are useful things to, to know there about the angles of, of firing cannons and rockets and all those things. And he, he seemed to enjoy it. I certainly um, enjoyed mathematics from uh, 
unlike reading, <laughs> right. uh, I certainly enjoyed mathematics uh, from my fr- very first exposure to it. And interestingly enough, my children seem to be pretty good at math. So we like math in my family. Mm. And uh, this then combined with my sort of fantasy life and thought, thinking about being an astronaut, science became came very, very high on the list of things that held my interest. Um, and then you went to I, MIT. And then I ended up at MIT, yeah. which, uh, which itself was a dream. I mean, mm-hmm. I was there at age 18, but I had first heard about the place when I was 14 years old by watching a TV show called Make Room for Daddy. I don't know if uh, you might remember that. It's a show with uh, Danny Thomas. I and guess this so, one ep- vaguely, yeah. <laughs> there's this one episode where this kid showed up who was a relative who went to MIT, and I heard about this school where all you had to do was study what I considered the good stuff, the science, the math, oh. and not so much emphasis on the reading and the history and all those other things they made you learn in school, but the good stuff. And I said, gee, that sounds like a, just a great place to go to school. Mm. So I wonder, when you is it right that you wrote the first ever doctoral dissertation at MIT on supersymmetry? That is absolutely true. I can't, <laughs> okay. say, I can't say it's the first in the world because it probably wasn't. Mm-hmm. There, there's no kind of official registry of these things. Right. I mean, but it was, it was pretty new when you were writing about absolutely. it. Absolutely. And, it, you know, it, it, I, I can say that I'm, I'm sure that it was among the first doctoral theses in the U.S. on this subject mm-hmm. and maybe among the first 20 or 30 in the world, like I said, there's no official way to find out. But yes, it was extremely early. And um, I was just totally blown away by the idea that I was alive at a time when there were these mathematical equations that said there were more forms of matter and energy than anyone had ever imagined before. I just couldn't believe I could get so lucky. So this supersymmetry... Um, it is part of the universe of string theory. Is that right? That's correct. Um, it, it's an enabling piece of mathematics. Without this piece of mathematics, we could not have consistent string theories. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's absolutely enabling. But then it plays a second role in that if string theory is an accurate description of nature, almost all such models show the property of supersymmetry. So I'm gonna I, I I'm gonna risk asking some really silly questions, but I, I'm oh, suspecting no I'm not the only. Questions. Well, okay, all right. But so all right. So I, one thing I do understand is that 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 symmetry is a is a quality that's found in nature, kind of lavishly. Absolutely. It, it, right. And so is this um, is this kind of a magnified, expanded manifestation of that? Is yes. Mm-hmm. Let me talk about symmetry for a second mm-hmm. because. It turns out that we humans are exquisitely wired for symmetry. Let me just give you uh, an example that I read about, which I was stunned. You know, we all go through life with this thing called a face (laughs) with which we greet people. And, you know, there are judgments about some faces being more attractive than others. A few years ago, there was an experiment done where uh, images of people's faces were taken, you know, accurately taken. And then the images were sliced in half. And then the one half of the 
image was thrown away. The other was retained, but they also took the part that was retained and flipped it so that you had a mirror image of it and glued it back together so it looked like you, you know, you had a complete face now. Right. It turns out that in all, you now go out and ask people who looks better. It turns out that the flipped image always looks better in most cases. And the reason is because the symmetry of the face is apparently something we are um, perhaps even genetically co- coded to look for in faces. Mm-hmm. So we, symmetry, one can, the best way, the simplest way to think about symmetry, it's, a, it's about balance. Mm-hmm. And a balanced face is, is uh, emotionally for us a more attractive face. So we humans, as I said, we're, we're kind of, seems like we're coded to look for symmetry. So we desire uh, and we approve we, it when we, when yeah, we see it. Yeah, and it, it, it shows up in strange places in our art and in our music. It's Like I said, it's almost like... In flowers, like, right? And I mean, it, in, the, in yeah. the design that you could say. And then nature, nature, you're right. And mm-hmm. then perhaps our human uh, affinity for this is a reflection of what nature does because nature uses symmetry uh, in enormous numbers of places for the shape of a flower, a snowflake... Uh, it, any place where we humans look out and we find something beautiful, if you analyze it long enough, you'll probably figure out that we're looking at a symmetric image. Mm. It's in our architecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Parthenon is regarded as a, a triumph of human, of ancient human architecture. One of the reasons it turns out to be because the proportions are set out in a very symmetrical way involving a special number called the golden ratio, which... Again, we humans seem to have some internal infinity for. Right. So nature is, uh, is symmetrical. Um, we seem to love symmetry. But then nature turns around and pulls a trick on us because if the world were perfectly symmetrical, we could not exist. So you And why is that? Those, why is that? Well, because you see, another symmetry uh, that we physicists talk about is something we call translation symmetry. And what it basically means is one place is just as good as any other. But when we say that, we mean it very specifically, that not only is it just as good, that all places are equivalent. Well, if that statement were exactly true, then you couldn't have the sun 93 million miles away because that place is different from the place we call Earth. Mm -hmm. And so nature in the end breaks symmetries, and it turns out that it's by the breaking of those symmetries that the laws apparently that a lot of nature that allow human beings to exist uh, occur in the way that they do. Mm. Okay, and I, I this may be a, a stretch to go here, but it, you know one thing that's striking. So when you were when you were a young physicist, when you were <clears throat> coming into your own as a scientist in this field, physics had made an incredible breakthrough. Had made incredible foundational breakthroughs in the early part of the twentieth century. And then those breakthroughs enabled other breakthroughs, which led to, you could say, it, an incredible lack of symmetry in terms of the understanding of the universe, right? That there, that there were That's fundamentally... Wh- is it? Chris, are you sure you're not a scientist? <laughs> I'm trying. I'm doing my best. So there were fundamentally competing, unacceptably irreconcilable def- um, understandings of gravity. Oh, Yes. And as you know, Freeman Dyson, this, he he gave me an, a, a picture that has been useful. That that 
there were ways to observe the laws of physics at what he called the mountaintops, which is where Einstein was so astute. And right. then, there, then the, other, the other end of things was the rainforest was total That's chaos, right. <laughs> seething chaos. Right. And yes, you're exactly right. That's a great analogy and a way to think about uh, physics. You, 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 you began your sentence by saying when you were a young physicist, and that triggered in me a thought. When, when I was a young theoretical physicist, um, I, I wanted to do something I think a lot of us want to do. Um, I wanted to find a beautiful mathematical piece of magic that was also <laughs> an accurate description of something in nature. That, that desire drives us. And so when I began to understand the kind of mathematics that Einstein established, the mountaintop mathematics, let's call it, and also the mathematics of people like Schrodinger and Heisenberg and um, uh, Bohr, mm -hmm. which we can call the rainforest mathematics, I was, in fact, particularly struck by how very different they were. In fact, I, when I was in the rainforest mathematics, I even had... Uh, a, a, a waking daydream about the equations I was studying called Schrodinger's equation. Right. And uh, so this dichotomy struck me in my second year of college, like, wow, can it really be so very different? And string theory is, a, is an approach to reconciling those things, right? Absolutely. Is that the right word, reconciling? No, I mean, that's a great okay. word to use mm -hmm. because... Uh, a moment ago, you, you talked about the fact that, you know, that our, our advances in physics led us to a point where things seemed to be very different when we looked in different places. And uh, one of the interesting things about symmetry is that even though we get to these places where things look different, sort of deep underlying that, we have kind of an intuition that it's got to be simpler than that. Mm -hmm. Now, the way that played out in physics is people uh, like um, Weinberg and Glashow and Salam were looking at the ways that one of the forms of nuclear energy works and comparing that to the way that light works. And the equations looked very different. And, and so they invented something which basically says it, it ain't as different as you guys think. And so they wrote a kind of set of equations which involve a process we call spontaneous symmetry breaking, which we'll come back to in a moment. Okay. But these equations, the whole role of these equations is to make the force of electromagnetism, that's what light is all about, and the force we call the weak nuclear force, that's really what equals mc squared was about, uh, at least in the t for, uh, application to atomic energy. Mm -hmm. Their equation said, aha, Although you guys think these things are really different, they're not. And so they showed a way in which they could be the same. In other words, they restored symmetries. Mm -hmm. Now, this process of restoring the symmetries led to a prediction. And that prediction was that something somewhere in nature, we ought to be able to find an object called the Higgs particle. And so the Higgs particle is a sign of symmetry, symmetry restoration. And boy, we're looking for it right now right. at and the LHC. The Higgs boson. The, the, the Higgs boson, absolutely. And, and why is that also sometimes referred to as the God particle? Because of this? Ah, 
Yeah. Well, well, first of all, we have to blame our friend Leon Letterman. Leon's a Nobel laureate, former director of the Fermi National Laboratory in Batavia, Illinois. A really great guy. That's someone you you should get on the show if if you can do so. But Leon uh, wrote a book called The God Particle. And that was the first time I heard the expression described. And the reason why... Uh, this name seemed appropriate is because this, the Higgs particle, the Higgs boson, as we'd like to call it, is, we believe, responsible for the creation of mass for everything else in the universe. And so in some sense, it is over all of them in terms of creating mass. And if it didn't do that, A, we would have the symmetry. Remember earlier we talked about the balance, Mm -hmm. the likeness. But if the what the Higgs boson does is break the symmetry and allows mass. And boy, are we happy about that because if you don't allow for mass, you don't get matter clumping together. If you don't get matter clumping together, you don't get atoms, you don't get molecules, you don't get us, you mm-hmm. don't get planets. So it is, in fact, the Higgs particle plays a critical role, we believe, in allowing the structure of the universe to arise in our equations in agreement with what we see in nature. Okay, so here's here's another question, and um, my understanding is that uh, <clears throat> string theory, in fact, doesn't imagine reality as composed of particles, um, the way or points. You've talked about how they you the analogy uses as billiard balls, which is the way we imagined everything, right? Um, but more or less strings are more like pieces of spaghetti. Yes. Um, now, so so when you talk about the Higgs particle, is the is that a particle, or or is it, is that just a, is that is that kind of language that's? Well, it's kind of depends on from what direction you look at it. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Well, um, if you you use the word string, so let me take you back to mm-hmm, that for mm-hmm. a second. If I had a real string, I could pluck it, and it would make notes. And depending on how I pluck it, I can make different notes. Now, a note is something that you can detect. You know, it can be very high. Unfortunately, I I don't have a tenor. Or it can be something very low. But you can detect the note as a specific input in your consciousness. And so um, the fact that the string vibrates allows us to identify those vibrations as what we think of as particles. So from our point of view, yes, and when we try to do our measurement, we would say, aha, that's a kind of particle. Okay, so let's let's say that's the note D. That's right. Okay, but that's still, the the string is still there. It's still a function That's right, because it's what the thing that produces that note D. Right. Okay. And then if you think about, say, the mountaintops where everything is orderly or, and the rainforest where everything's chaotic, the quantum and the, and the higher levels of physics, is the idea that, that this, this, this string, you know, it's one string, um, it's one entity, but that depending on what's, what forces are playing on it at different ends, it may look wildly different or sound wildly different? Depending on, in fact, it works like a real string. Depending on how it vibrates determines what kind of force you think you saw. 
Okay. So it can vibrate one way, mm-hmm. and you'll say, hmm, that's an electron. That, let's say that's a C note. Okay. Uh, if it vibrates a different way, you say, no, no, that's a, a photon. Let's call mm-hmm. that the F note. And so the, all the various ways in which the string vibrates are, from our perspective, we would identify as different particles. Okay. Okay. Um, and is this true? Is this, does this analogy hold for, um, you know, the life and death of stars and for nature as we observe it? What, what, what is this helping explain? Right. Well, one of the things that string theory has definitively shown us is that the idea of symmetry, as Einstein wanted, in terms of a single set of equations to describe it. Uni- he wanted unified he wanted theory. A, right? He called it a unified field mm-hmm. theory. Until string theory came along, there were no good, good mathematical ways to show if Einstein's idea could ever work. With string theory, we know that it's possible to achieve his goal. Now, you can argue that we may not have achieved it, but now we know it's possible. That's okay. one thing. That means that our view of the universe is very different. Uh, one of the things I like to, like to tell people is with string theory, we have a view of the universe where we become essential to its structure. That's not true for the equations beforehand. Okay. So uh, sort of at a philosophical level, we become we become part and parcel of what our universe is in a way that I've never seen done in science before. And that is and because because we can control the so the, the so the so right so so the the physics before the there were these remote perfect equations that explained right. what we saw but and, they yes but they, they didn't need us diff- and they play, right, that's right and they even played in different neighborhoods so mm-hmm. one set of equations played at the mountaintop they were perfectly mm-hmm. happy to play at the mountaintop but there how, were another set the, mm-hmm. Hmm? but 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 how 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 do human beings influence that well it's in physics it's not. How can I say? What we're looking for is a coherent story for how the universe works. Mm-hmm. And when I say that we're in the story with string theory, what I mean is if you use the mountaintop equations, which is a way that describes Einstein's equations, Einstein's equations don't actually require stars, they don't require planets, they don't require any matter, they just require space and time. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, on the other hand, if you look in the rainforest equations, uh, which now, uh, more technically, we would call the standard model, um, you, what you'd find is, gee, uh, there can be atoms, there can be electrons, there are these funny things called quarks, there are particles of light, but there's no gravitational force, no consistent description of the gravitational force, which means you really can't form galaxies and planets. So these two separate equations, these, although they, they work very nicely in their own domains, mm-hmm. if you ask for the complete story, neither set is sufficient. And so it's as with string theory, it's as if we get a more complete version of the telling of the story of our existence. And 
something that you have written about that that's part of your endeavor is is naming what you see right so i mean is that one way that that we interact um with these physics just by by naming what we see you know it's you know in many cultures the the act of naming yeah it's, is regarded as a very very powerful thing yes it's creative and, and even you know, uh, uh, in many traditional cultures, the choice of names for children is a highly non-trivial mm-hmm. uh, act. Mm-hmm. So for us, the naming represents a, 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 a celebration of becoming aware of knowing the universe at a different level than we had, bef- than we had known before. Um, I, one of my favorite examples is something that for day we, today we just take for granted it's called the electron, mm-hmm. but there was a time before anyone ever dreamed that such an object could exist. In fact, we know the first person who had that dream is a guy named J.G. Stoney. He was an electrochemist in England. And before he said, hmm, there's a funny bit of possibility that there's a bit of matter smaller than an atom. And he was a person who, who later actually named the object the electron. Okay. And so once we know about the electron, what, what does the naming do for us? Well, once we know it's there, we can start to use it. And boy, you're, we're used to it at this very instant with the electrons that we're manipulating to talk back and forth. And so the naming, <laughs> okay. All right. right? So this comes from the naming. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit like magic. You know, it's like uh, in the Harry Potter, Potter movies, there are all these spells, conjurus, uh, yes. this and that. Us. So thrilling. Yeah. Exactly. So in some sense, if science conjures, it's when we get a clear picture of something that we didn't know and we give it a name. Okay. And another very interesting intriguing way that you talk about it, 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 that you talk about mathematics for example so everything we're talking about here the strings um, and even the electrons until not that long ago were not proven they're unseen but you talk about the telepathic nature of mathematics yes so that even before some of these things can be seen in this literal sense uh the theoretical physicist has this extrasensory perception organ. <laughs> yes. Um, and I'm not the first person to notice this. In uh-huh. fact, there's a very famous quote by Charles Darwin. And the quote goes, With mathematics, it seems as though one is endowed with a new sense. And so he was talking about it in exactly the same terms when I like to say we have this extrasensory perception. Mathematics is a sensory perception organ for those who learn how to use it that way. Mm. Um, The um, example I like to point out most is the idea of the atom. Again, today, a very mundane idea. You say atom, and people yawn, say, oh, yeah, yeah, we know all about atoms. But you can ask, who was the first person to understand how big an atom is? Most, you know, this is a question you very seldom encounter, but the answer turns out to be rather surprising. It's a guy named Albert Einstein. Really? Yes. It, the same year that he wrote his very famous works about space and time and uh, t- time slowing down, so we call it special relativity, he also wrote a paper on what we scientists call Brownian motion. And it's all about mathematics. He wrote some mathematical equations. And then he 
went in the laboratory and he observed how small particles, small dust particles or small particles in liquids, how they move. They, they, they perform something called Brownian motion. And in using his equations and comparing that to what was observed, he had to figure out what was the size of the atom, and he did. And mm. so that's why he's the first person to know how big they are. Mm. And so in that sense, it was his mathematics that let him see the atom. Nowadays, we actually have technology. You can go in some very fancy laboratories and look through things called atomic force microscopes, and we can actually see atoms. Mm-hmm. But Einstein was the first person to do it, and he did it with math. In your your sense, it would be that one day um, there will be mechanisms for seeing these strings. Actually, that might be very, very Because they're in different dimensions? Well, first of all, I'm a dimensional refusenik, although the majority of my community... (laughs) Well, that means that although a majority of my community uh, seems to adhere to the belief that string theory requires extra dimensions, my position is I know about mathematics that doesn't require Mm -hmm. extra dimensions, but it's comfortable if they're there. But it also works if they're not. Okay. That string theory can work without extra dimensions. And this is something that is very seldom talked about. But in the late 80s, three different groups of us came to this conclusion. So that's what I mean by I'm a hidden dimensional refusenik. I don't go <laughs> okay. there. Um, but the problem with strings and observing them in nature is they are so incredibly small that it is just almost inconceivable how we'll ever get the technology to directly observe them. Mm -hmm. We can perhaps see indirect implications, but the direct observation, just it's almost unimaginable. You know, I really want to ask you, um, I've talked to various people over the years about this notion of whether mathematics is invented or discovered. And you, you know, you use language that is related, but also distinct and interesting about Science being about uncovering the codes for reality. Yes. Mm, how do you think about this invented versus discovered question? I oscillate, Krista. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Quite right. frankly, I oscillate. Yeah. It, you know, as one who 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 has actually written equations that we still don't know, you know, whether they describe something in nature, but I'm hopeful, and I'll I'll come to that later too. Um, it feels as though one makes a discovery of something that was already there. It often feels that way. Mm-hmm. In fact, in solving these equations and finding these results, it, it often seems the case as though it's almost like the equations are trying to tell you a story. It's a little bit what I hear about when authors discuss how they work, that when you write a character then the character at some point begins to take over and begin to to determine, right, come to Mm -hmm. life, and then gets you to tell the story that the character wants to tell. Mm -hmm. This sense of of finding the mathematics that was already there is very similar to that, I think, that we discover these things, but there's something that seems to be pushing often uh, I mean, when you do the calculations, it's as if there's an imperative to follow a, a path and that this path then tells you the deeper story that the equations are trying to get out for us. 
So, you know, when I was reading you and just kind of digging around on the Internet, and I found um, a religious uh, blogger, also a scientifically literate person, who was, you know, taking your idea of <clears throat> codes yes. that structure reality, that are embedded in the essence of reality, yes. and just thinking about that theologically for sure. its theological potential. Sure. Sure. So let me let me uh, try to give a little bit of background. So, you know, I, as you earlier asked me in the, in this interview, I'm I'm one of the first people in the U.S. to worry about this thing called supersymmetry, mm-hmm. and I've been worried about it all of my professional life. We've never seen an experiment saying that yes, I'm here in nature, but the mathematics has just been amazing, and uh, so, but there are problems that no one has solved yet in this mathematics. Um, in the middle 90s, I decided I was getting sufficiently old that I could make a fool of myself if I wanted to and try to solve some of these what problems that people regarded as unsolvable. And in doing that, we were led first to a, a, a graphical technology, mm-hmm. something we call the dinkras. Uh, right. This is a word that comes from traditional uh, West Africa uh, 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 languages. Um, but we found these mathematical objects which sit inside of the equations with the property of supersymmetry. Then secondly, even more shocking for us, when we analyzed these objects very carefully, we found out that they have attributes of ones and zeros in precisely the same way that computers use ones and zeros to send Hmm. digital information. And in particular, the kinds of codes we found, which was the most shocking thing for us, is that there's a class of codes that allow your browsers to work um, in an accurate way. They're called error-correcting codes. We found a role for error-correcting codes in the equations of supersymmetry, and this was just (laughs) stunning for us. In fact, it was so stunning that it was at least eight months before any of us would sort of admit how bizarre it was. (laughs) And this is a group of mathematicians and physicists. It wasn't just me. I, I really do need to you know, acknowledge. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. think that science is solitary. It turns out it's not solitary. Yeah. And it's, a, it's a communal activity. And mm-hmm. so there were three physicists and three mathematicians and that I had, I had brought all of us together. And we wrestled with this stuff. And like I said, it was months before we, admit, we would admit how bizarre this result so what, was. So what, what was it for you that was so bizarre that you hadn't expected to see? that overturned what you went into it with? Well, because I was just trying to solve, like always, I'm just trying to solve an equation. Okay. Um, But to find the kinds of things that are in the same classes of strings of ones and zeros that are also allowing browsers to work, Mm -hmm. I never imagined that 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 was possible. In fact, it's, it's actually against what I imagined. There was this physicist named John Wheeler who maybe 20 or 30 years ago uh, made the assertion uh, that goes by uh, an aphorism uh, he invented. He said, it from bit. It means everything. Bit means computer bits. Mm-hmm. Most of your listeners probably have never heard of, of John Wheeler, but he's also the man who invented the word black hole, and almost okay. everybody knows that word. All right. So when he uh, made this statement about, about the structure of the universe, that's the it, must somehow come about from information, those are the ones and zeros, I thought the guy was crazy. 
And um, so that's what I mean by it was. So there was this earlier phase in my career where I couldn't imagine that the equations of physics would wind up having a substructure of ones and zeros, not because you're trying to calculate something, but because it's intrinsically part of the equations. Oh, and so, so one um, place to take this is that rather than it being a theological notion, that we are in fact a computer program. Is that yes? But let me let me give your blogger some some do though some props as some young people okay. would say. Okay. Because uh, I there is a blogger who, so we wrote that we wrote this story for an English journal called Physics World. It was published in the summer about the Adinkas, right? About the Adinkas uh-huh. and the codes. Uh-huh. And um, this blogger, who to this day I don't know this young man, uh, saw read the article, and he raised a question that if the equation if the equations of fundamental physics are based on information theory. Essentially, he does this in, I mean, he doesn't do this in, a, in a, an aggressive way, but he, he asks a very pointed question. If that's the case, and information theory is at the very center of string theory, how did it get there? Mm-hmm. And his implication is that, indeed, this is something for theologians to contemplate. So, you know, I was, I, you know, that was, again, a, for me, a, a stunning assertion and... Uh, it still has yet to be fully studied, but it probably will not be studied by physicists. <laughs> right, right. But it couldn't be uh, proven wrong any more than any more than you could prove wrong that that in fact we're not in the inside the matrix somehow. Not really. Ah, uh, well, <laughs> let's talk about the matrix. Okay. So we have now reached the point where I am comfortable saying to people. I have found in equations with the property of supersymmetry the presence of error-correcting codes. And these, are, these codes are like the codes you use in your browser. I, I, you know, that's, that's just what has happened to me. So that then raises the question of, again, I'm a science fiction fan even to this day, and I remember watching the movies The Matrix. And so I, the thought occurred to me, suppose there were physicists in this movie how would they figure out that they lived in the matrix? <laughs> One way they might do that is to look for evidence of codes in the laws of their physics. But you see, that's what had happened to me already. That you found them. That we had, I and my colleagues, indeed, we had found the presence of codes in the equations of physics. Not that we're trying to compute something because, you know, people use computers to with equations for years, this has been going on. You're trying to find out a solution. But we're not trying to find solutions. We're looking at the structure of the equations. In fact, it's a little bit like doing biology, where if you studied an animal, you eventually run into DNA. And that's essentially what happened to us. These codes right. that we have found, right. they're, they're like the DNA that sits inside of the equations that we study. So, um, yeah. So do we live in the matrix? Well, I told you earlier I thought John Wheeler was crazy. What this experience has taught me was um, if you do physics long enough, you too might become crazy. <laughs> that, that's what happened to me. Right. Um, but um, another physicist by the name of Eugene Wigner uh, cautioned us about this sort of stuff. He said... Is he the one who said the unreasonable effectiveness in mathematics? The, he, Eugene Wigner mm-hmm. is the author of a very famous article called On the Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. Mm-hmm. And he basically said that just because you find a single piece of mathematics in two different systems, and I'm paraphrasing, 
doesn't mean that the two systems are related to each other. So just because we have found these codes sitting in the structure of these supersymmetric equations, and, and, and since these codes are like the ones that you might find in a browser, it doesn't mean that a browser is related to reality. Okay. But it's fun to think about. <laughs> so um, I love the, the, the piece you wrote that I, I could kind of follow about the Adinkas also. Um, it, it got me thinking. There was another analogy that came to me because, because also what you're talking about, uh, in, in any case, you know, at any point, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you're talking about using visual symbols and geometric symbols. And so, you know, in a way, moving beyond um, the uh, equations, right? I mean, a- adding to the vocabulary sure. in a way um, that scientists have to describe the nature of reality. And what it, re- what it made me think of, like adding, adding to the way you have to describe truth, but then then perhaps also being able to describe truths that you couldn't convey before. It, it made me think of... Um, you know, the way in terms of language, language, that um, there are things you can do with poetry. There are truths you can convey with poetry that you simply can't get at with, uh, you know, factual sentences. Is, is that? No, no, that's exactly right. And in some sense, that's what's been driving me in a lot of this effort to develop this. Because remember, I told you there are these unsolved problems mm-hmm. that are out there hanging around. Well, I became convinced that using the language that I and my colleagues have been developing for 30 and 40 years was probably not going to allow us to solve these mathematical problems. So I was consciously looking for an alternative language. A moment ago, you used poetry versus prose. Mm-hmm. I was kind of looking for a new, a new uh, prose that would allow me to get at these problems in a way that no one had ever thought about before. So mm-hmm. the, that was quite conscious that we that we tried to develop this alternative viewpoint to study these properties of the equations. Um, we didn't set out to create a graphical image-based language, but as I said earlier, mathematics often tries seems as though it tries to t- make you tell its story. That's what happened to me. Hmm. It, in this study, I was driven to this this image-based approach. Right, so it pointed you also to needing it, different tools for telling this Exactly, mm-hmm. because I. it turns out it's about listening. In a, in a very strange way, it's about listening, as if one would listen to what a character says as you're trying to author a story. Okay. It's, you listen very carefully, mm-hmm. and it's amazing what happens. And doesn't that word adinkas also connote in West in the West African uh, culture that it came from hidden sure. hidden meanings yes uh, uh, it's it's uh, this is this word often um, uh, becomes one that uh, people have some difficulty acquiring so let me spell it first okay it's it's adinkra with okay. a k-r-a so a-d-i-n-k-r-a adinkra and yes adinkras have uh, existed in West Africa uh, and not the our mathematical type, obviously, but the word has existed in West African cultures for a very long time. And adinkras are symbols that have hidden meaning. Uh, one of my favorite is one that was the cover of the uh, British magazine um, Physics World, in which our story was the cover story. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an adinkra which uh, you look at it, it's a bunch of shapes, and it says, he who, it translates roughly as, he who does not know can become 
knowing by education. And so it's a symbol that for me, I thought I thought was a great choice, and I have to credit my editor because I, I didn't know this, mm. but it's a great choice for what physicists do. We become knowing through education, and our education is, a, is actually a dialogue with mathematics on the one hand and nature on the other. Mm. Well, um, let me ask you about the um, Large Hadron Collider. CERN, which is just one of these completely intriguing places in our world today. Absolutely. You know, and I don't think most of us really have any idea or really idea at all what goes on there. But somehow, you know, it's it's exciting enough that um, it makes the news. And right. And uh, I'd like to know kind of, you know, how would you have us watching what's going on there? Right. For why it matters, what might be interesting? Sure. Um, I don't know if you ever saw the movie uh, Angels and Demons. Yes, of course. And I read the book, Uh, too. And you read the book, Mm -hmm. too. So do you remember in the movie this giant scientific establishment where the villains were going to acquire antimatter? Yeah. That was based on Stern and Mm -hmm. the LHC. Mm -hmm. So what is it? Well, uh, it's first of all, it's a tunnel. Um, there's a pipe in this tunnel. It's uh, between 150 and 300 feet underground. It's not that the tunnel tilts, the ground tilts because it's tilted up towards the Alps. Um, the, gr- the tunnel itself is actually perfectly level. Um, in this tunnel, there's a pipe, and in the pipe, we pump the air out. Uh, why do we do that? Because we want to shoot protons at each other, and if the air was there, they'd keep bumping into air molecules and losing their, their speed. So we shoot protons at each other, and then we bang them together with more energy than protons have ever been banged uh, by humans. Uh, The protons are moving 0.999999, the speed of light. We make them go faster than anything humans have ever made travel before. And then we bang them together because by doing this, we have created conditions that are somewhat similar to what might have existed around the time of the Big Bang. That's why the LHC is sometimes called the Big Bang Machine. Mm-hmm. Now, why do we want those conditions to be present? Well, earlier we talked about the Higgs particle and how it is uh, uh, evidence of symmetry being broken. When you put more energy into nature, you go back to a more symmetrical or mm. more perfect uh, condition. And so by putting the energy at higher and higher levels, we are exploring nature uh, closer and closer to the Big Bang when we expect there were more and more symmetries present. And so it's a way actually to try to get back to a time before the symmetries were broken and to study how nature works in that regime. And that's one reason, for example, why we're looking for the Higgs there because you would see the evidence of the symmetry restoration by going to these high energies. And it's also the reason why we're looking for super particles or mm-hmm. sparticles, as they're called there, because, again, these are evidence of a more symmetrical uh, time that the universe would have existed in. You know, um, this is kind of woven through our conversation, but um, there's something so lyrical and whimsical about a lot of... About just well, just just for starters, the way physicists name things, <laughs> you know, I mean, quark. Well, we could think of so many examples. I mean, sparticles even. Um, when I, I remember reading when the that the when the hadron collider 
made its first observation of a new particle, and the language was that it was made up of a beauty quark and a beauty anti-quark. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what is yes. it? Yes. Well, you know, I, you know I, I, there are a couple of different interpretations people have of, about this sort of naming things. And yes, we do it in a whimsical manner. Uh, one reason quite possibly is because we are so frustrated most of the times that we get delirious when we find something new and nice. <laughs> that's one explanation I've heard people give. Uh, it's kind of a tradition that's been established that... Uh, you know, we're having a little bit of fun. And so uh, this is it probably can be traced back to Murray Gell-Mann and his use of the word quark because he's the person who did that. There was another physicist by the name of George Zweig who would have called them aces if he had had his way, but quarks won out. <laughs> Why would he have called them aces? Quarks was from, the, was it from James Joyce? From, it, that's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. But the point is that who, you know, the person who gets to these things first, yeah. you get to choose the name. And they, George and Murray were actually working independently of each other. So they didn't know hmm. uh, that they had both gotten to the same place. I actually, I had the privilege of meeting both of them when I was a postdoc at Caltech in the early 80s. So I actually knew uh, both George and, and Murray, and who, I, who uh, is still alive. I mean, right. And not, Murray Gelman, yeah. he also coined this phrase, the eightfold way. Absolutely. I mean, that's another kind of thing you'll find, a play with language that has this these Buddhist yes. echoes. Uh, yes. Yeah. And um, all I can say, you know, when I was young, I found that kind of stuff quite, sort of annoying, quite frankly. <laughs> I'm like, why couldn't they name it uh, like the chemists? You know, right. chemists use nice, reasonable words like electronegativity. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, but we physicists, as I said, I think partly it's the joy in what we do mm-hmm. and... Uh, you know, I've just pa- I've just passed my 61st birthday. I'm having more fun now than I've ever had thinking and doing theoretical physics. And that perhaps is reflected in the way that I use language to describe the things that, that I'm doing and that I and my collaborators find. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I didn't name uh, Sparticles. That was a name that someone else gave. But it, it, it it's a kind of consistent with the, the way that w- we work these days and... and uh, the, the fun that we have, and yeah. I, I, I suspect this will continue for a very long time in theoretical physics. Yeah, is another one I, I found just digging around about you, sizzling black holes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, what's, that's what Stephen, from my perspective, that's what Stephen Hawking did. I, I've known Stephen since 1980, and um, he's an amazing person. But the thing that he did in science is that he's the person, we, earlier we talked about the mountaintop in the rainforest. Yeah. He's the person who said, hey, you up there on the mountain, and hey, you here on the, down, down there in the rainforest, I can get to the tree line, and you guys have got to agree on something. Right. And that's effectively what Stephen did with his sizzling black holes. So, you know, I want to just, there's a line of yours. Um, I'd love for you to tell me what it means. Uh, we talked about how different part of that, that tree line where he was looking both directions was different explanations of gravity. But you said this. Um, Gravity is the odd man out for deep philosophical reasons. Yes. Talk to me about the deep philosophical reasons. Well, in well, first of all, let me let me use a phrase that uh, my colleague uh, Stephen Weinberg used uh, in the Elegant Universe video. He said that when Newton described gravity, he um, he joined the celestial with the terrestrial. Hmm. And that's kind of right because 
the celestial in those days of Newton was, gee, why do the planets move around the sun in the way they do? Why does the moon stay up in the way that it does? The terrestrial, well, why does an apple fall on my head if I'm sitting mm-hmm. under the apple tree? So Newton comes up with an equation that describes both of these things. And yet, most of what we scientists do, with the exception of people like astronomers and cosmologists, mostly what we do is look inward. And so that was the thing that I was alluding to, is that you know, most of the fundamental, a large fraction of the fundamental science that has been done to this point in our species history has been inward looking. And mm. when you get to the point of saying that by going inward, you actually wind up having to face the outward looking part of our universe. Mm. That's a, to me, that that's a different transition, a different sort of philosophical transition, which has been occurring in theoretical physics for about two decades now, where we've been forced to think that, gee, you gotta, you actually have to look in both directions. You have to be that person mm. at the tree line who understands what's going on from the mountaintop view, but also from being under the canopy, canopy of uh, a panoply, sorry, the canopy mm-hmm. of the primeval forest. You have to understand both of those viewpoints, and that to me is a, that's a different kind of philosophical approach. So, I, I'm not sure if this is at all correct, but it seems to me that the word force. I mean, you know, I'm not sure as a non-physicist exactly what the difference is between force and energy, and I. I'm wondering, uh, is, is force yeah. a term that physicists are using more or differently now? Yeah, we do. Yeah, well, we do because, well, one thing I tell people is when you get people like me uh, talking about physics to non-physicists, we're going to lie to you. <laughs> and uh, But we're lying to you in the, in the service of truth, so <laughs> don't crucify us. So the point is that if, if I'm teaching uh, a class of physicists, there's a very precise meaning of the word force. Uh, if I'm teaching that same class of physicists, there's a very price, precise meaning of the word energy. If I'm talking to the public, mm-hmm. I cannot trot out three lines of equations to talk about what the differences are. But what I can do is to tell an accurate story about the way the universe works. And in that sense, the forces between things like electrons also represent a form of energy because photons carry energy. And so I will blur that distinction in the service of trying to get this larger message out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, force is, is another one of those words. Or, you know, when you start talking about things like that and the way nature works, that, that's another kind of, that's, that language also can be, you know, the, theologically evocative for people. It can be, and um, one of you know, I, well, one of my heroes is a man named Stephen Jay Gould. Unfortunately, Stephen died some years ago, but he was just an uh, just a an amazing scientist, and he talked about this this issue of being on the the boundary of theology and science, and. Mm-hmm. And in particular, he was one person who enunciated um, what he called uh, non 
overlapping magisteria. That is that as a human being, uh, one can work as a scientist, but that does not mean that it's an attack on faith. Mm-hmm. And um, that's one interpretation. I mean, essentially he was saying that these things operate in different realms, which is something I've actually thought about, about why that might be true. And, and what I can say is that science, because of the way science is constructed, what do we mean by that? Well, one of the assertions of science is that we don't know everything and that in order to increase our knowledge, we have to be in dialogue with nature. And it has to be a constant dialogue. And it's not sufficient to end that dialogue because as we increase our ability to measure nature, we can ask questions at a finer and finer level. And so we keep finding new things, not because nature is changing, but because we are increasing our capacity to ask the questions of nature. On the other hand, there could well be things that we can't measure. And if that's the case, that falls outside of the realm of science. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, is the the great secret for why the notion of non-overlapping magisteria um, holds some validity. Mm -hmm. Now I have a friend named Neil deGrasse Tyson who would say, no, that's not right. You're talking about God in the gaps, as is the expression I've heard him use. And I don't think that's right, actually. I, as I have experienced science, it's about what I can measure. It's about what humans can discuss and create and ultimately falsify. It's, in fact, not about the things that I see in faith. So, um, although there, it feels theological, perhaps, I, I mean, to, it may, I'm sorry, let me rephrase it. Although it may seem theological, as I have experienced science, I don't see how it can be theological. Right. I mean, I think what you said a little while ago about some question we were talking about, this being raised, right, if you're talking about codes embedded in reality— Yes. That might be a, something that theologians might take up to ponder, but it would be a completely separate enterprise from whatever scientists are doing with uh, with their knowledge of those codes. Y- yes, I I did make the comment, and that's because scientists aren't qualified, quite right. frankly, to do <laughs> right. that. Right. Well, so, so you know, your science, the science you do, is not about um, human life. I mean, no. it's not explaining. It, your science is not explaining what it means to be human uh, biologically, no, or right. No, but, no. but, how does the science you do, the view you have of the universe, you know, how would you think about how that then informs your your sense of what it means to be human? Well. well I think the deepest message I take from science is that as humans, we actually have to embrace our fallibility. We have to embrace Hmm. what we are in terms of our ability to measure, our ability to know, and that by embracing these, what 
by em- embracing uncertainty, actually, because I, a large part, uh, I think a, a major difference in the way that scientists view the universe and perhaps non-scientists is that science, in my experience, does not permit us the illusion of certainty. It does not allow us to say we can be certain. And that's one thing that causes very great difficulty in talking to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, when you, as a scientist, as when we talk to each other and someone says, what do you know? First of all, that the word know implies knowledge. Knowledge is a very finite thing. And when you ask a scientist about a measurement, we will tell you two things. We will tell you a number. That'll be something we have measured. And then we will tell you something called the range of uncertainty. And what that represents is how good we are at measuring it. And if in science, if you give the first number without the second, it's actually, it's considered bad science. So we are forced by the structure of science to recognize human fallibility, human limits. And therefore... Uh, that's one one reason why I, you know, there are people and I, people I respect who certainly disagree with me on the, the point I'm about to make. But because I see in science a, a call for us to to always be mindful of our limits, I don't then understand how science can actually be used to attack faith. Mm-hmm. Because... Uh, from what I have seen, um, science is is not equipped to do that. It, it, it's it's if it's if it's something we can measure, sure, that's in the realm of science. But if you tell if you're talking about things that are outside the realm that I can measure, then as a scientist, I I my feeling is that you. you if you're going to be honest to science, you have to be mute. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I, if I think about what comes to me when I look at, when I read you and talk to you and look at your work and in terms of your humanity being informed by your science, I mean, I also think of things like just the joy you described a minute ago in, in doing this. And also the, and this is another way to talk about what you just said about fallibility, the huge perspective that you get. Um, I mean, I watched a video of you just being interviewed informally at a gathering in Australia, I believe. Yes. Where somebody's talking to you about race. Yes. You know, and I mean, it's it's it one of one of the many credentials you have. One of the distinctions is you know, that you are, I believe, the first African American physicist to hold an endowed chair. And in fact, you grew up. You know, you went to segregated schools for a time in your childhood. But does does this view of the universe you have now? You know, how do, what does it do with that kind of obsession that we have um, culturally? Mm. Let me uh, start from a slightly different place and try to come back. Mm-hmm. There's a film called The Nature of Reality. I'm sorry, The Nature of Existence, sorry. And uh, the producer's a, a young man by the name of Nygaard, and he went around talking to all kinds of uh, savants, if I may use the words. Mm. So he talked to religious people. He talked to um, scientists. He talked to artists, uh, and uh, he asked uh, some deep questions. And after he did, after he completed the film, he um, 
was asked, well, which group do you think had the sort of the, I don't know if the right word is best, but which, which, which group do you think had the most complete view? And he said the physicist. <laughs> um, and so when, when I look at what science does for us, the fact that we can study our genomic structure, the DNA that's inside of each of our cells, and use that to reconstruct the human story of populating the planet, that to me is the kind of demonstration of what science does for us. Mm-hmm. It tells us in this part of the story, it tells us how the part of humanity that we normally call European, how they're related to the part of humanity that we call African, to the part of humanity we call Asian, and the various populations. It literally tells us a story that many religions have said for millennia, Hmm. that all humans belong to a single family. And now science does it with a precision that none of them could. It can tell us how your cousin uh, in uh, northern France is related to uh, a relative uh, in uh, Botswana yeah. or, or how the, 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 the uh, native people of South America are related to the African peoples uh, of, of uh, say, uh, Somalia. This story has been revealed through the workings of science. And so... By embracing our limits, by embracing our fallibility, we become more knowledgeable. Mm. You know, someone recently reminded me that Einstein said that imagination is more important than knowledge. I think that's a, you like to quote that as well. I do because it puzzled me for so long in my life. How uh, could that possibly be true? Really? Well, I just wanted to ask you, you know, where, where's your imagination taking you now? But tell me first why it puzzled you so much. Well, because earlier we talked about my life of imagination and how I, I use that to deal with the, the difficult circumstance of losing my mother as a, as a, as a nine or 11 year old child. Um, so for a long time in my life, imagination was the world of play. It was reading about astronauts and monsters and traveling in galaxies and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Invaders from outer space on Earth, you know, all of that stuff. That was all in the world of the imagination. On the other hand, um, reality is all about us, and it's constraining, and it can be painful. Uh, and so, but the knowledge we gain is critical for our species to survive. So how could it be that play is more important than knowledge? And it took me years to figure out an answer. And the answer turns out to be rather rather strange, I believe. I, I've actually written essays uh, about this. There's one on my homepage. Uh, I, I don't, don't recall the title. But the, the bottom line is the reason imagination is more important than knowledge is because imagination turns out to be the vehicle by which we increase knowledge. Hmm. And so if you don't have imagination, you're not going to get more knowledgeable. And so that's why I, I, I finally came to understand that statement of Einstein. Hmm. 
So what speci- what's especially piquing your imagination and your curiosity now? Well, we're still trying to solve some of these 30-year-old problems. We've got these new tools called the Dinkras where we're trying to understand them at a far more precise level. Um, it turns out that these things apparently are new pieces of mathematics. I um, have spoken to a number of mathematicians about these, these ideas, and everyone that I've spoken to said, nope, they've never seen anything like this. Mm. In fact, there's a young Ph.D. student at uh, MIT who looks like he's going to perhaps write the first uh, Ph.D. thesis on a mm. for mathematicians. So we've also succeeded apparently in, in uh, once more creating a, a new piece of math, which is always a nice thing as yeah. far as I'm concerned. So that that occupies my imagination uh, is trying to get this story complete. We're nowhere near completing the story. When I and my student, um, a young woman from Pakistan by the name of Lubna Rana, first started this journey, I had a sense that we had stepped uh, onto a new mathematical continent. I felt a little bit like Columbus. I still have a sense that that's where we are. Um, if uh, this turns out to, if supersymmetry shows up in nature, then this mathematics says something very powerful about the universe. If supersymmetry doesn't show up in nature, this is still some, what I suspect is going to ultimately be found to be really uh, intricate and beautiful and perhaps important mathematics. So my imagination sits on, on those subjects in science these days. Hmm. Well, um, Tim, I, this has just been great. I can't thank you enough. It's fascinating. Oh, Chris, it's always fun talking to you. Really, really <laughs> wonderful. I hope, I wish you luck in getting the editing done so that this shows up in some kind of... Oh, no, uh, it's going to show up. Don't worry about that. We can oh, no, no, it. not that it's going to yeah. show up, but that it shows up in a way that I don't embarrass myself. You won't have no, that's not, no. I mean, really, this is wonderful. Um, I want to see if there are any questions behind the glass. Uh, um, I'm going to be... There, there may not be, or we will, we're, we will um, be in touch with you about when we're going to put this on the air and okay. all that stuff. Um, okay. I think somebody's coming. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna be quiet while I listen in my headphones. Oh, can I say something? Yes, sure. One final thing. Mm-hmm. Go to Google when you get a chance, and put my name in, and also uh, inside of quotes, write "Tell it on the mountain." There's a story there I think you'll enjoy. <laughs> It's it's a moth story. I don't know if you know the moth. Oh, I do. You did a moth story? Oh, years ago. Uh, oh, I can't wait to watch that. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I can't. It's too much. It's too much. Yeah. I don't I don't think I I think it's too, I think it's like starting over again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do do you Mhm. 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 Yeah, is there a Oh, you mean a, a couple or or point us to something. Yeah. String theory, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just just wondering, um, 
is there where do you point people or do you have an elevator speech um, who just want a basic couple minute introduction to string theory? I mean, I, I know you're out there oh, doing that in place of yeah, what yeah. do you where would what would you do? Okay, well, when people ask me about string theory, I do a couple of things. First, okay. I point them to my homepage because I have some resources there. Mm-hmm. So if you you just you know you just uh, Google Jim Gates or James Gates and it'll get you there. There are lots of sites pointing back to it. But if I'm in an elevator, what I do is the following: I say, someone says, "So what's string theory, Jim Gates?" And I say, "Well, let's see. If you play billiards." And you were the first person to describe how the balls bounced off of each other accurately. Your name would be Isaac Newton. And so it, all the physics that we've had up until now really is based on the idea of little bouncing balls. Okay. String theory says no. Suppose there's something in the universe that you can't describe with pieces of bouncing balls, but you have to describe with little pieces of spaghetti. Little tiny filaments, in other words. Well, that is what string theory does for us. So, so would you would you would you then say that if if Isaac Newton were standing at that billiard table, that that the same thing would happen, but that that you would you would have a different way of imagining what's going on. We would be looking at a deeper level of the story, okay. essentially. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the way to Instead think of just those individual isolated right. things exactly. hitting, hitting Christy, each other and bouncing. Exactly, Chris. We would be boring down to, to the heart of the atoms and the, and the uh, force carriers, uh, you know, the lights that's bouncing. Those are the questions where string theory mm-hmm. actually. And all the to. interactions that are going exactly. on. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. I think that's as good as we're going to do, and it's better than most people get. No, that's my <laughs> Most people speech. do not get your elevator speech, but we are going to share it with the world, and I'm excited okay. about that. <laughs> Thank you, Krista. Thank you so much. I hope I get to meet you one day. I'll come to oh. something when you're speaking. Where are you? Are you in New I'm York? In, I'm in Minnesota. No, you're, I'm in New where York in Minnesota? Uh, St. Paul. St. Paul? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah. Well, I do come to Minnesota. I, I don't know if you've ever heard of Gustavus Adolphus College. Yes, Absolutely. I spent a semester there in 2005 as a visiting professor. Oh. So, and we have friends in, in, uh, in uh, oh, I can't think of the name now. But we have friends on campus there. Well, if you ever, if you come back this way and you have time for coffee, just shoot me an email. Okay. Okay. All Okey right. Dokey. Yeah. Okay, All well, best to you. thanks. Thank you. This was fun. Yep. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.